You may be a little rusty turning to the New Testament nowadays, right? Let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 19. And the reading will begin in verse 8 this morning as we look at the gospel to Ephesus. Jesus Christ is exalted in Ephesus. Now you know that we're blessed in the book of Acts to get a chronological summary of how the gospel is going to progress to the ends of the earth. We know it, when the Spirit of God has come upon you, you shall receive power and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. I hope you realize from the last time, I should have encouraged all of you to go back and listen to Acts 19, 1 through 7, correct? When we see the, the, the baptism of John's disciples. But what you really see here is the fact that the same spirit that was poured out at Pentecost is also poured out to John's disciples. And this is the record of the beginning of the gospel to the ends of the earth. When you get to Ephesus, that, that is exactly what you are seeing given to us in the book of Acts. So Acts 19, in Acts 19 we have a great picture of what the gospel of Jesus Christ can accomplish. Now we like to think that the gospel is very nice and sweet and mellow and heartwarming. Uh, it's kind of like putting a little caffeine into your life. But I want to remind you that the gospel is not some nice, sweet, mellow, heartwarming message like a little caffeine given to your life. The gospel is like a freight train. And when it collides with the world and religion and culture and the power of darkness, it causes no small disturbance. In Acts chapter 19, verse 23, about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. I'm telling you folks, the gospel causes trouble. We know it does. And so this is what you're going to see in Acts chapter 19. The point of preaching the gospel is to cause a power encounter or truth encounter with the risen Christ. And the goal is to turn the world upside down for Jesus. Now if you remember, there were two dear saints that were left in Ephesus to do a work for the Lord. What are their names? Aquila and Priscilla. If you remember, we had a, a really good day talking about these two saints and what they meant to the early church and how we can follow along the same lines of being a, an Aquila and Priscilla. But they're laboring in Ephesus. We talked about the, uh, in, the interesting section of John's disciples, the John the Baptist's disciples. But the main thing we see, again, is the Spirit of the Lord coming in power. And there was a universal uh, aspect of this. The universal gospel of Jesus Christ is becoming universal in application and experience. And so Paul, in this text, we see a literal beachhead being established in Ephesus where the remaining sections of the world are going to be reached through a church plant in Ephesus, which is amazing. All the seven churches of Asia Minor mentioned in Revelation are going to spring forth out of this incredible revival. That's awesome, isn't it? So God is doing great things, and He does great things in Ephesus. It's an amazing story. What we should realize is that when someone is genuinely converted in faith in Jesus Christ, he or she is going to get new affections. Things are going to change. Old loves, desires, interests are replaced with new ones. Those who are in Christ, Jesus, experience a new love for Jesus. A new love for church. 
No amen? Even from the balcony? A new love for a single mission and purpose. We see this dynamic with the converts in Ephesus. It's an awesome passage of Scripture. When affections change, everything else changes. Isn't that true? You ever met a young teenage boy about the age of 16 that is smitten with a young girl who's about 16? I mean, you couldn't even get the kid to wash behind his ears before that happened. Never washed his vehicle. Never hardly took a bath, for that matter. But all of a sudden, when he gets this new affection in his life, everything changes. I want you to ratchet that on up tighter and higher and higher and think about what happens when you trust Christ. You ought to be smitten by Him and everything in your life should change. This text is really like a great awakening. When you read through this, revival hits Ephesus. And it's a, it's a great awakening when the Word of God is supreme. And then God is displaying His power in miraculous ways. Jesus Christ is magnified and people begin to confess and renounce their sin. Folks, that's revival. And I just gave you the four points of the sermon. Okay? Let's read it. I'm not finished though. Right? Uh, chapter 19, verse 8. By the way, we were on our way to church this morning. And Natalie looks over at me and she says, What did you put on? Well, you ironed my shirt and my tie. But I put the wrong suit on the shirt and tie. Y'all notice anything? I don't. I told her. I mean, it's purple. But literally, I mean, that's what happens around the preacher's house. I literally put the wrong suit on, on top of the shirt and tie. I've never wore this combination before. I, but anyway. So not only is my vision going bad, but I don't even know which suit to pull out of the closet. So don't be surprised if I pull that Christmas suit back out one day by accident. But anyway. All right. Let's give attention to the Word of God. Just stay close. We're going to read from verses 8 down through 20. And by the way, in the sermons to come in Acts, we're going to take larger swaths of Scripture. It's necessary because of the narratives, okay? Beginning in verse 8. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn, remember that from last week? And continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation... Paul withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years. Wow. Two years. So that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing ex extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all in the name of the Lord Jesus was, I said this earlier, extolled or magnified. Also, many of those who were now 
believers. Greek text. And many of those who had already become believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their incantation books together and had a bonfire. Burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. The NLT said it was worth millions. Well, that's a revival when people give up that kind of money, right? So the word, note this, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now, you have your outline in your bulletin. Y'all see that? I've been working so hard to get that accomplished. And I finally got my sermons in the bulletin. All right? We had to take some things out. Don't get upset at me. But the fact is, it's very important that you're able to see the word of the Lord, uh, to see sermon divisions and track along. So there you have it in your bulletin. First, the word of the Lord increases and prevails. In 8 through 19, that's what we see. He entered the synagogue, and he's preaching, and he's proclaiming, and he's witnessing. And when they shut the door of the synagogue, he moves on to Tyrannus, and he's preaching there. And in all, what are we looking at? Two years and three months where he is proclaiming the word. Now, what do we know about the synagogue? That's missionary strategy for Paul. Very first place he's going to go if they have a Jewish synagogue where there will be Jewish people, worshipers, and God-fearers and proselytes all coming together. What's the common thread? He goes to the synagogue because they're going to have the common understanding of the Torah or the Old Covenant, or the Old Testament. And he begins to go to that common ground and begins to proclaim and preach the Word of the Lord and how Jesus Christ fulfilled all of those Old Covenant promises. Now, I think Paul must have had some latitude from the Lord God Almighty to be able to last three months in the local synagogue. I think the Lord must have been prevailing and allowing him three solid months to preach. Now, I don't think he's doing friendship evangelism. He's not just going in and hanging out and uh, slurping on some coffee and eating a donut. I mean, the guy is reasoning and he's proclaiming the word and he's in there engaging them with the gospel. And as the text says, he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly. I told you months ago that that's a key popular word for Luke. The word boldly, it means frankness and boldness and it's accompanied with courage. So he's going into this synagogue and doing this. And what is he doing? He's reasoning and persuading about the kingdom of God. He's convincing them concerning the kingdom. In other words, this means he's convincing them concerning the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ inaugurated the new kingdom, the new new covenant and the kingdom. It's his work. So he's preaching for three months that Jesus Christ is the king. The Messiah who fulfilled all the promises. He is all three. Prophet. Priest and king. Now watch verse 9. Many became hardened, disobedient, and speaking evil. You do know that's a progression of those who do not want to hear the gospel. You see this in the word of God. You see it lived out in our community and in the world. There came a point where after preaching three months in the synagogue that people began to be ticked off. And actually it led to a violent response against the gospel of Jesus Christ. They refused to believe This is the word apatho, which means to be stubbornly disobedient or disbelieving to the word. And then they start speaking evil of the way. Does this happen in our world when we tell the world that the gospel is exclusive 
and Jesus is the only way to heaven, what's going to happen? People are going to become violent over that. And there's that progression. They are hardened, like we, see, like we saw last week out of Isaiah 6, that judicial hardening. And then there's disobedience. And then it leads up to total speaking out against and defying the gospel. So we clearly see this project, uh, progression in rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. Unbelief, ladies and gentlemen, has a fatal progression. When a person hardens themselves against the living God and His Word, there's a slippery slope that's going to end in destruction. So they have complete rejection of the gospel in their heart, in their mind, and in their volition. In their will, they're stubbornly against that message. So Paul's going to pick up, take some disciples with him, and he's going to a place called Tyrannus. It's probably a lecture hall. And it's more than likely named after a man named Tyrannus, right? Some of the early oral tradition boasts that the Apostle Paul would go into this school, into this lecture hall, at 5 o'clock in the 5th hour. And he would stay all the way to the 10th hour. Every single day for two years. What do you think Paul was doing in the morning? Working with leather. Making tents. Doing whatever it took to support himself in Ephesus. And here Paul would go in uh, from the fifth hour on. Now why is that important? I don't know. No, seriously. Here's why it's important. In their time frame, most scholars believe that they took their siesta around 5 p.m. It was more common for people to be awake at 1 a.m. in the morning than it was for 5 p.m. in the afternoon. You're like, whoo, I wish we could go to that model. I know I don't want to be up at 1 a.m., but I would like to take a nap every day at 5. I really would. But that's what's going on. And so more than likely, think about this, when they have their downtime and their siesta time, Paul gets ready to go. And he goes into the synagogue, he goes into to Tyrannus, and he is preaching the word of the Lord. And he does this for two years. And isn't this captivating? And all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Isn't that phenomenal? I mean, I think this is kind of the first time, I didn't check this in Acts, but everybody in the area heard the word. That must mean that it was more than just Paul that did this. It's the fact that they were carrying the gospel away from Tyrannus. When they trusted Jesus, they took the gospel with them. Do you think people were carrying it to their various areas? I would say absolutely. It's probably at this time that the church of Colossae was planted by Epaphras. Most likely, again, all seven churches of Asia Minor were planted during this time. In other words, the word of the Lord preaching and proclaiming of the gospel of Jesus Christ and His Word created this beachhead in Ephesus. And it affected the entire Asia Minor. This is interesting. We have missionaries in Asia. And just think about this. The missionaries went out from Asia. Now they need to go back. We're in danger of that too. In our country. We, I told you how pivotal Acts 16 is for us getting the gospel. That Paul was given the Macedonian call. And he went east by God's direction, and we need to thank God that he did that, so that we heard the word. But it's interesting to read the text and think about this. Now look, folks, when it comes to God's word, remember what our point is? We're looking into the word of the Lord increasing and prevailing. Do you not see that taking place? In the synagogue, prevailing for three months, triumphing. And then in the school of Tyrannus, and everybody is hearing 
the Word of the Lord. But I want to remind you, it's not just the sermons that your preacher preaches on Sunday morning. I'm talking also about Christ meeting you in the Scriptures alone when you're studying the Word of God. I'm talking about you helping others with the Word of God and meeting Christ in the Scriptures. Folks, I'm telling you, that's the only way you can meet Him. You meet Christ through the Scriptures. Faith cometh by hearing. You can't even have faith, folks, without the Word. So I'm encouraging you as a church to think about this. We need to intensify our efforts one-on-one, Sunday school classes, small groups, large groups. Every gathering we have, we need to intensify our efforts in expositing and explaining to one another and to groups what the Word of the Lord says. I believe that it can transform not only Ephesus, it can transform this church, and it also can transform the entire world. Folks, you know God's got this thing, don't you? He is not coming back for an incomplete bride. And and when it's all said and done, Jesus Christ will rule and reign. And it's going to be according to His Word that this is accomplished. So my encouragement to you is to remember Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, and it revives the soul. That's what happened. When the Word of God was preached, it revived souls. And so the first thing we see in this great awakening in Ephesus is that the Word of the Lord is increasing and it's prevailing. You just can't stop it. You can't stop what God is doing through His Word. Number two, the power of God is displayed. Now, these are some extraordinary things we read here about an apron and a handkerchief or a headband, isn't it? It's extraordinary things taking place. But here's the key. Who's performing the miracles? I mean, it says clearly in the word of the Lord. And God was doing extraordinary things. Miracles by the hands of Paul. Notice how they are described. Luke wants everyone to know that Paul isn't a magician. He isn't a miracle worker. God gets the credit for what's going on in Acts chapter 19, 11 through 12. Luke also identifies the miracles as extraordinary. You know that there is a difference in terminology. There are normal miracles that have accompanied apostolic work. But there are other miracles that Paul would say are extraordinary. Or Luke will say this. And these are just that. You don't see these throughout the scriptures. These are unique to this setting. Paul would later say in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 12 that signs of an apostle were with me. And surely he's speaking of the apostolic witness and how God used him and miracles that were unique that accompanied Paul in his ministry endeavors. Again, Paul was probably making tents in the morning. And I bet you would sweat when you make a tent, right? The text talks about things or cloth that was in touch with his skin. So more than likely, most scholars believe what would happen in the morning was Paul would get up and he would take what we would call a headband and he would tie it around his head. And he would work. But he also had something called a sweat apron that was tied around his waist. And so these were the things that he was using himself in touch with his skin and full of sweat. And the fact of the matter is, people were getting these. And the Bible says, you know, again... Think about this. He takes that rag, turns it into a headband, ties it around his head, uses the sweat apron. And this was a cloth large enough, again, to wrap all the way around the waist, absorb sweat. And in this section, 
we see the power of God displayed through an instrument. Or God would see fit to use an apron and or a headband that had come in contact with Paul. It was not Paul's sweat healing anybody. It was not Paul's ability healing anybody. And unfortunately, this section of Scripture has served as the inspiration of thousands of tele-evangelists for over 2,000 years. This is very unfortunate. In this text, they're taking pieces of his headband and waist apron, placing them on people, and they were being healed. I don't think for a single moment that Paul was packaging these pieces and offering to people for a tax-deductible offering. It's not what's going on in this text at all. What do you know about Ephesus? What do we know about it? Well, first, remember, not only sickness, but they were removed... Demonic oppression left people. Demons were cast out based upon this. The question, there is no question that of all the cities that Paul would have gone into, Ephesus was the most steep in the occult, in magic, and in demonic activity. It was the New Age capital of its day. No doubt about it. So God is here accompanying the gospel message of Jesus Christ with miracles that are extraordinary to capture the very magic-minded Ephesians. Isn't it awesome that our God would condescend in mercy and kindness to show the Ephesians how how His power is much more powerful than anything they could ever imagine. And that's exactly what is going on. Did you know that little of the typical Christian life ever involves visible displays of miraculous power? We all can attest to this fact. I hope you've read the Proverbs. But most of your Christian life involves submitting to God's revealed word called the Bible. While all the time walking by the Spirit of God and pursuing godly wisdom. We need a balanced view of miracles, don't we? Because there's no doubt that the gospel message was accompanied with extraordinary signs and wonders while Paul was preaching the word. But we need a balanced perspective on miracles. We cannot rule out the miraculous, right? Because our God is not in a box, He can do anything that he wants to do. But you better not assume that God is not at work when you don't see miracles. The greatest miracle of all all is when he resurrects your soul and saves you. Because no other miracle means anything or is worth anything unless you are saved by grace through faith. So the greatest miracle of all is salvation. God raised Jesus from the dead and all who are in Christ one day will vacate a tomb. I'm telling you that's the greatest thought in my mind the older I get. One of these days, God will give you a new body. You're going to vacate a tomb, just like the Lord of glory. What an awesome understanding. So while we should avoid sweatband ministries, we should also keep trusting in the God who raises the dead. Right? We talked about this in Acts. There are parts of Acts that are descriptive. And we know as a church, we pick up on those descriptive things and we see other scriptures supporting that. And those are things that we need to describe uh, or prescribe to our church. So there's prescription, things that are prescribed that we need to think about doing. But there's also things that describe historical events that God never intended for us to try to mimic. Y'all listening? We're not called by God to mimic what happened in this text. It's not prescribed anywhere in the New Testament to do this. 
It is described for us. Paul is simply the instrument here. God could choose to do these miracles today. But certainly we should not expect it. Now look, would this have made Paul a very popular person? Man, if he did this kind of thing today, he would certainly have his own television network. Right? TBN or whatever else. But what's going to happen is this catches the attention of the exorcists in the town. So next week we'll talk about how the gospel affects social order. It just turns the world upside down. But this is beginning, you're beginning to see a little bit of how the gospel touches more than just small groups. It affects a whole community and a whole society. And this is part of it. So the word of God is prevailing and it is increasing. The power of God is on display. Anything the occult might think they can do, they hold no candle to the king of glory. Right? God is in control. But here's the third thing. Jesus Christ is magnified. And in this little excerpt, we meet the seven sons of Mr. Sceva. Interesting, right? Alistair Begg calls them the streaking sons of Sceva. Right, if you listened a while ago and heard that they're going to flee naked. But these are itinerant Jewish exorcists. Now, where do these guys come from? You have any idea? Well, do you remember that Jesus was accused by the Pharisees of casting out demons in the name of Beelzebul? Y'all remember that? Raise your hands. Are you awake? If you don't remember, you need to read your Gospels, right? There's four of them, right? Read the Gospels and you'll see that they, they say to Jesus, you're the spirit of Beelzebul because you're saying you can cast out demons. It's got to be in the name of Beelzebul. <clears throat> Jesus said to them, if I cast out demons according to Beelzebul, then by what authority do your sons cast them out? Hmm. The Pharisees have some sons, sons of Sceva, whoever that might be, that are actually, they're in a business. They really are. And Jesus said, therefore they will be your judges. Now note this, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Hallelujah, is the kingdom not here in Acts 19? Right? Because we see, well, it's through the Gospels too, but here in power, we see this. So scholars debate this guy's designation, sons of Sceva or Mr. Sceva. But most believe he was merely related to a high priestly family back in Jerusalem. However, if you're going to make your living casting out demons, then it's a good thing for your advertisement to say, I'm of a high priestly family, as you're making your money. But in our passage... These guys go and go, they try to cast out demons in the name of Jesus. Now be careful here. It's not because they know Jesus, nor do they want to know him. It's not because they've been saved. They had their normal incantations that they did. They had their normal formulas that they used. Probably I adjure you in the name of or in the person of this. And they hear Paul preaching. <laughs> and they also see people taking his aprons and his headbands. And they're like, wow, let's just get connected up with this. Let's tap in to the power. These guys are syncretists. Do you all know what that means? It is an amalgamation of all the different religions and cultures and thought melted together. And I'll have to be honest with you, there are some Baptists like that. To my chagrin, there are some Baptists who believe a little bit of every kind of religion. And that is so sad. There's only one saving faith, and that is in Jesus Christ the Lord. Period. So even Baptists sometimes are syncretists. 
they brought all these thoughts in from the world and culture and a little bit of Buddhism and a little bit of New Age. And they just bring, you can't do that. All right? You can't do that because there's salvation in only one. There's only one God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we can't do that. Some of you are sleeping, now you're awake. So these guys don't believe the gospel, but they certainly desire to tap into the power. Let's imagine that these guys had a pretty successful exorcist business. They had their ads on TV or whatever. Who are you going to call? Some of you that grew up in my day would say, oh, that's right, that's right. Some of you folks got to watch the movies, all right? Look, look at what the old folks look at. But, and then let's try it. Look, new incantation. New incantation. I got a, we got a new one today. And they actually received the power encounter of their, into, in, in the, their total career. What a power encounter. It's just not what they thought it was going to be. Right? The evil spirit responds out of the man. So in response to the so-called incantation, we adjure you in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. They respond to this. The, the demon responds this way, Jesus we know. And Jesus' name in the Greek is in the emphatic here. Jesus we know. We know him. And Paul we recognize, but who are you? Man, this is one of those texts that's always just got me. Do they know you? Are you serving Christ enough? This is... Whether I'm getting this exegesis right for my own life, I have to, I'm going to give you the right one. But here's the deal. I've often looked at this and said, oh, Lord, am I engaging enough? Am I threatening the enemy enough that they even know who I am? Period. For most of us, we would say, absolutely not. There's no way we can because we're not doing anything. We're not engaging. We're not living for Christ. They may say, they may have said we recognize Paul because... They say to themselves, man, these stupid aprons are causing us to lose our home life. Right? Come on, folks. He's casting demons out of people by the aprons, so they're losing their homes. The demons are losing their homes. Maybe that's why they're kind of, y'all are slow today. You know, maybe, maybe they're familiar with Paul, but the fact of the matter is, they're, uh, they're, not, they're not happy. And, of course, the Bible gives us what the response would be. Who are you? <laughs> this is quite new to these guys, don't you think? Now, think carefully about this for a moment. The demonic spirit speaks through this demon-possessed man. He acknowledges Jesus Christ. Uh, they did this in their earthly ministry. Remember that time they say on one occasion, Have you come to torment us before our time? Don't you think that they know full well who the king is? And that's why the text says at the end of this that Jesus was extolled and exalted. And here's the greatest part of all of this. They know who Jesus is. Lord, why have you come to torment us before our time? They know their time is short. They're on a neck-popping leash and it's getting shorter all the time. They know that. And here the text is quite vivid. He, the demon-possessed man, jumps on them. All seven. Think about this. And exercises dominion over them. Our terminology would be something like this. They got beaten into submission. That's exactly the terminology here. Then our passage says that, they, that he prevailed against them. That's the word subdued them. Now again, the word of God is what's subduing people too. 
right? That's the theme of this, really. The, 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 the subduing power of the Word to accomplish what our God has asked it to accomplish. It's going forth, and it will not return void. And yet, the same word is used here. And all seven of them flee out of the house naked, wounded, and bleeding. Man, this wasn't a common occurrence nowhere, no matter where you lived, right? To see this. Verse 17 tells us that the news traveled fast. I guess it hit the Jewish daily home. And the Goim Gazette, right? The Gentile Gazette even put it out there. And everybody knew about it in the town. And please check out the response. Fear fell on them all. It's common in the book of Acts, right? And again, stop and consider the historical setting of where this takes place. The spiritualistic capital, occult capital, uh, capital. There's a palm reader on every single corner. They traffic in the dark side of the spiritual world all the time. And the powerful thing in all of this is the fact that Jesus is recognized by the demonic world. And in response, jump, they jump all over someone, given a word, and overpower them. There was a sense of awe and fear. And there's something about this Jesus that Paul preached, whom even the demons recognize. Then it says this, the name of Jesus was magnified. And the idea is that his name was made large, extolled. The city is laid in waste with spiritual realities and darkness. Yet it is now in awe and fear of Jesus who is magnified. Don't we want that kind of revival? Where the spiritual powers of darkness are overcome and Jesus Christ himself is magnified. This leads us to the final mark of the Holy Spirit being at work. And it's believers confess and renounce their sins. Now this power encounter affected those who had already believed, right? It's clear from the grammar that these were believers who were participating. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and they found it to... Some scholars say it's anywhere between $250,000 up to millions. It's all dependent on variables. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Could we stand a good dose of believers catching a glimpse of the power of Jesus in such a way that it causes us to think about our sinfulness before God? It causes us to renounce former habits and sinful habits and to confess those sin, sins. In other words, there's a deeper sense of repentance before God after this takes place. After Jesus is magnified, how does it affect believers? Well, believers began to look at themselves in the presence of a holy and a righteous God. Those who had confessed faith in Christ saw what took place in response, began to confess their sins and renounce certain practices. Kind of seems on the surface to me that some of these believers were allowing the things of the past to coexist, thinking that they could maybe put another God on the shelf so that if Jesus doesn't work out, maybe one of the other ones will. As a matter of fact, when you read the book of Ephesians, y'all know where that book came from? Yeah, his ministry in Ephesus, right? As he writes that book, I think that throughout the text of Scripture in Ephesians, there's this sense that the Ephesian believers are still kind of captivated and wondering should they fear the occult or, uh, or demonic life. Why? Because of Ephesians chapter 6. 
The greatest chapter written in the Bible on spiritual warfare is found in Ephesians chapter 6. And what is, the, what is the reminder? Therefore stand in the victory that you have in Christ Jesus. Put on the full armor of God. So there's this reminder to them. And so I think uh, the response, total separation from the past. How are we doing on this one? I mean, folks, this is a big one, is it not? The Bible says in Ephesians, uh, 1 Thessalonians 1 that Paul says, We know what kind of entry we had to you, how you turned to God from idols to worship the true and living God and to wait for His return from heaven. So there was a separation from the past for those who truly met Jesus Christ. And for all of us, there are certain things, certain sins that we kind of want to hold on to. I would encourage you to allow the Scripture to magnify the King more in your life. And when that happens, you're going to be more aware of the things that you should let go of. Is that making sense? Let me tell you what will cause revival to take place in this church. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves, seek my face, and... Here we are. And who's that written to? Unbelievers? No. It's written to those who bear the image and mark of Christ. My people who are called by my name. These are already the people of God who are in need of revival. When my brother got saved, it was probably around, I didn't call him and ask him, it was probably around 1984 because he would have been around 16 or maybe a year or two before that. can't remember for sure. But you know what my brother did? <clears throat> he had some albums by Kiss. Remember that group? Yeah, man, that was some rough stuff back in the day. Well, my brother didn't burn his albums, but he did throw them in the dumpster. Why did he do that? For my brother, it, it, that, that's not the life that God had given him. That, and, I, and I'm not trying to encourage all of you to have a bonfire, but spiritually, you probably do. Inside and out. What is it that's keeping you from being all that God would have you to be? And it's so easy for these things to grip to you. You know, we know there's besetting sins that kind of like, are like, more like ankle weights. Just get in the way of your love for Christ. But there's also some, just some rank old sins that just need to be confessed and renounced before the king so that you're fit for service. And so these believers are confessing and renouncing their sins. That's when revival will hit our church when we see that take place. People are willing to say, own up and say, that's me. You know what confession is? It's agreeing with God that what he calls sin is sin. That's what confession is. If we confess our sins, he is faithful. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now please, this is something you need to think about and listen to. Why are churches so anemic today? Why is it that we don't see this kind of thing taking place? Why is, it, is this just reserved for... Paul and all the other guys, when God does extraordinary things and increases with power in his word? No! Some of it has to do with church members and quote-unquote saved people who are just not believing that he's king and they're not magnifying him. He's not the most important thing in life. There are other things that are more important than Christ to us at times. We need to, we need to try a little bonfire work here. We need to have some uh, great spiritual inventory. Say, God, what is it that's keeping me from being all that you would have me to be? Chris preached about this the other day. It might be your left hand. Whack it off. It might be your foot. It might be what you reach out to do in your life that you know you shouldn't be doing. Whatever the hand touches. Whatever your feet 
are running toward. You need to confess it, renounce it, repent. Maybe it's what your eyes are looking at. And that's why Jesus is so strong. Poke it out. Right? In other words, you need to be serious about sin. We need to cultivate a militant attitude. And here's the thing. There's a thread going on in this text, people. The Word of God is prevailing. Jesus is magnified. People are confessing and renouncing their sins. Hallelujah. That's just good old revival taking place. And look at the summary. Verse 20. And the Word of God is increasing and prevailing mightily. Chapter 2, chapter 6, chapter 12, chapter 20, chapter 19, chapter 20. This same word is used. In other words, this, this is Luke's punctuation on what the gospel is doing in Ephesus. The kingdom of God is triumphing. The kingdom of God, like a freight train, is rolling over its enemies. And God is accomplishing His purpose. Now in conclusion, church family, this is a picture of gospel triumph. Not only how the gospel triumphs in your own life, but how about corporately as a church and as a community. This is a picture of the kingdom of God advancing and spreading. Paul preaches the word. People get converted. They renounce their sin and idolatry. And by the Spirit of God, the entire social order is impacted by the gospel. Do y'all believe that the word of God and the gospel subdues? It's going to bring into submission people to the Lord Jesus Christ. And like a freight train, it's going to roll through Ephesus with overwhelming power. And it's rolled and rolled and rolled and rolled to this present day. And it's going to continue to roll. It overcame the darkness and it brings new life. Enemies of the kingdom of darkness are cracking and crumbling. Our God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the undisputed king. And he is the one who is triumphant. No matter what's going on in Washington, we know who the king is. We know who's Trump, who is triumphing in all ways. Don't underestimate the power of the gospel. Wouldn't it be awesome next week to have this church full of people who have never been here before? But you know why they came? Because the power of the gospel changed their lives. Because you shared it with them. You proclaimed the gospel. Wouldn't it be awesome for this church to be absolutely full Bursting at the seams of people you thought didn't have a hallelujah chance of heaven. But the gospel steamrolled them. Subdued them. Brought them to their knees. Saved their souls. It has the power to do it. You know, God has the power to do it. The gospel of Jesus Christ can save your soul. You say, well, preacher, you don't know how bad I am. Let me just go ahead and tell you, make this clear. You're a lot worse than you think you are. Before a sovereign God that is absolutely holy... You are far worse than you think you are. And Paul gives this to us. Paul said, if Jesus Christ can save me, the chief of sinners, he can save anyone. Amen? I say that too. If God can save me, knowing me, he can save you. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you're in the saving business. And God, what an awesome picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ triumphing. And one of these days, Lord God, we're going to see all this brought to fruition. We're going to see you face to face. And we're going to be able to join the angels around the throne. Singing, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And Lord, I pray that we would become people. Lord, I know I'm seeing effects of the word preached in this church. And how people are growing in the word in small groups and Sunday school. Lord, I see the power of the word working. But Lord, let us not take that for granted. And Father, let us, Lord, be more committed with confidence that your word can change hearts. 
that you can accomplish your purpose. God, give us a new confidence starting today in the Word of God to change lives. Lord, our lives and others we come in contact with, the gospel of Jesus Christ can change souls. God, give us a new, renewed confidence in that. And Father, again, if there's one individual that's been under the sound of the preaching of the Word today that's lost, God, would you draw them to you with the silver cords of grace. Let them know that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And you can save sinners, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.